Welcome to Paranormal Heart, a place where people can talk about their paranormal experiences. With your host, Cat Ward. Welcome back, folks, to Paranormal Heart's first episode for the year 2022. I hope your New Year is going well so far. Here in Ontario, COVID is on the rise again. We've had record-breaking cases, and with that, we've gone back to stage two. And that means schools are done virtually, restaurants, bars, and gyms are closed, and essential businesses can only have about 50% max capacity. So, people, we're all so very tired of this. I just want to say, wherever you are listening from, Please be patient with cashiers, other employees, patrons. Just be kind and hang in there. This will all be over. I'm not sure when, but it will be over. And I just want to give a special shout out to all of you amazing first responders. I know you're also very tired, exhausted. Uh, We really appreciate you. Much love to everyone listening to this. I have a great episode for you tonight. I'm joined once again by a longtime friend, the crypto guru himself, Ronald Murphy. We'll be talking about my favorite cryptid genus, lycanthropes. That's werewolves, lugaru, and dogman. We also touch on other topics as well. If you'd like to be a guest of the show, or have questions, comments, or just want to say hello, drop me an email at paranormalheart13 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to like, share, and su- subscribe to the show. Whew, that was a little tongue twister, wasn't it? You can find me on YouTube, Podbean, FringeRadioNetwork.com, or any place you find fine podcast. Now, on with the show and my special guest, Ronald Murphy. Hello, Ron. Welcome back to Paranormal Heart. Uh, it's been a while, ma'am. I, I was expecting you to get in touch with me sooner uh, because I so love to be on your program. But if I'm not mistaken, now is this correct? Am I the first person to be on your show in 2022? Is that true? You are the first guest of 2022. That's right. Well, I will accept that honor, and then apologies <laughs> are accepted at this point as well. So um, I do like talking with you. I think that you have a great stance on uh, on the way people look at the paranormal and you think outside of the proverbial box, and, and I'm happy to be on your show anytime you ask me. Thank you. Yeah, there's um, a bunch of people, you know, yourself, Brian Bowden, and Al Santariga. I just, and there's so many others too, but uh, I just love having you guys on. It's like your family. It is. It does. It feels like, you know, we're, we're, we're talking to uh, a family member. And I think that's what a lot of people like about your show, too, especially the listeners, is that they can kind of sit back and uh, feel like they're in the living room listening to us chat. Yeah, I've been told that, and it makes me feel really good knowing that because that's pretty much what I'm going to or going for. Because I like for people to be able to listen to the topics and everything. But it's just like we're sitting in—I think you had mentioned this before—the virtual living room, uh, having a beer, chatting about the paranormal. 
Yeah, I think that that's the way we should do things because if you listen to a lot of talk shows out there, uh, it, it, it's almost exclusory. It's almost like, you know, it's kind of an inside club and you're kind of eavesdropping. I prefer this way. I prefer to be much more organic and much more friendly to uh, everybody listening. You know, we're all invited here. We all have a stance. We all have our own opinion and we have our outlook. And it's these kind of, uh, you know, taking in all this kind of stuff, the, the gestalt uh uh, aspect of the paranormal, you know, taking it and treating it holistically is really, you know, what I enjoy so much about it. I don't want to be in one particular camp and see this very strange world of ours just through one perspective. I like to look at it through multidisciplinary perspectives. Exactly. I uh, When people say there's two sides to the, to the coin, uh, I say no, actually there's three because you got the edge as well. <laughs> you have the edges, and yep. what we're dealing with too, we might be dealing with virtual coins and you know, yeah. uh, you know, uh, all other kind of things going on there as well too. Yeah. So different, different perspectives of looking at the paranormal, and we we don't necessarily have to agree. I just want to have a safe place for everyone to talk about it, and that's what I like about my guests. Well, that's the whole thing. I think what you have, uh, especially in this day and age, is you have uh, got this idea of uh, celebrity involved with the paranormal. And people often think that those folks who are on TV are the experts in the field. Yeah, when in actuality, there are no experts in this field. Uh, they are, they either look good or they're, you know, a great talking head or they know somebody in the business and it's through networking. Uh, but those people that we kind of bow down to, uh, whether they're looking for ghosts or cryptids, uh, they had a break in life to become these paracelebs. But they really, and again, like I said, there is no experts in this field. We're all, uh, you know, a part of a very ambiguous type of endeavor. Uh, we don't know where this rabbit hole leads if it leads anywhere at all you know this might be one of those multiverse things where you flip the coin and 500 of the same coins are being flipped in other other dimensions as well too so i like to keep my eyes open and my ears open and look at it from uh all aspects uh you know being skeptical of course but never being closed-minded exactly yeah i um, like to have people of all every type of background i don't care if a person is a celebrity in the paranormal world or if it's just the regular person like the cashier down the road at my grocery store i just want ever i just want to hear everyone's stories and i don't care like i said if they're a celebrity or not i, I want to hear the stories so everybody else can relate to it as well Sure, sure. And there has to be relatability, which is, and again, like I said, it feels like we're all sitting together in a living room, you know, and we have our feet propped up and somebody's drinking a coffee in the corner and somebody has a nice tea and somebody has a brandy and we're all sitting there kind of enjoying ourselves around a, a warm fire on this, uh, you know, this bleak midwinter that we're facing right now. And, uh, you know, we're just uh, asking and answering uh, the, the questions that are posed to us and see if we can kind of connect the dots. Yeah, brainstorming. And I'll be sitting in the corner yep. with my Kraken spice drum. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, I've heard a lot about it. You're a fan of that, right? That's your go-to. Yeah, I love spice drum. Uh, Kraken is probably one of my favorites. Um, that one. And when we were living in Alberta, uh, uh, it used to be called Price Club, uh, Costco. They actually have liquor stores in Alberta at the at the Costco. I couldn't believe it because we don't have it anywhere else in Canada. And they make the best spiced rum so it's uh kirkland i think it is so yeah 
Well, you know, I don't drink, and it's it's a kind of a shame sometimes because people I, I can't relate to what people are talking about. But I think that if I were to drink anything, it would have the name Kraken in it because I do it like that to. very much. So maybe yep. one day down the line, I'll try to imbibe a little bit and see <laughs> if I will be able to take it. But yeah, I never caught on to it, even as you know, uh, you know, uh, in college or anything. I mm. I never got into the party scene, and I and I, I besides a beer, I've never really drank much of anything. Oh wow. Good for you. Yeah. I know that's what they say. <laughs> well, I'm having you here to talk about my favorite um, cryptid uh, genus, I guess you could say, the lycanthropes. And that could be um, werewolves, Lugaru is my favorite, dogmen, any other lichens that you can think of that we'd like to discuss. Um, the floor is yours. Well, see, and this this is my favorite as well too, and not only a cryptid, but you know, I like to deal in the in the abstract of archetypes, um, and this is my favorite archetype out there. Um, you know, going back to uh, Carl Jung, who I really have uh, been impressed by and has really influenced a lot of my work. Um, you know, he believed in the idea of this collective unconscious that we all share, uh, and in that collective unconscious, there's these little nightmares that. Have affect the human race around the world, you know, uh, across space and time. And, um, you know, they're the archetypes, you know, that we have, uh, you know, there, there's archetypes for other things, but there's also archetypical nightmare beings as well, too, of which the werewolf is definitely one of them. Uh, so in my research, I've always been enamored by the by the werewolf. Uh, you know, as a kid, it was my favorite uh, monster movie, uh, going back to the Lon Chaney, uh, you know, yes. the, the, the very poorly uh, transformation on uh, on film wherever slowly uh, uh, he, he gets covered in hair and he goes out into the moors and uh, uh, tracking down grave diggers and things like that. I've always liked this monster very much uh, because it's so human. Uh, it, it, it is one of us and um, you know that that great saying that was uh, written by a, a Hollywood uh, producer you know that uh, you know even a man that says his prayers by night uh, can still, uh, change into an animal, still become uh, this monster. And that has always fascinated me. And I think that that's what the werewolf represents. The werewolf represents the idea, the notion, the horrifying, chilly, chilling reminder that humanity is can, is capable of fantastic and great goodness. Uh, but at the same time, in, in the idea of structuralism, uh, this idea of goodness is also mired down by the inconceivable heinous activities in, uh, that, uh, that a human being uh, can produce as well too. So uh, you talked about the coin at the very beginning, the analogy of the coin, and I think that that's what the werewolf represents as well too. It is the the, the, the tell of our uh human coin, if you will, and it represents everything that we are capable of doing, uh, but we don't like to admit that we're capable of doing it. And so doing, we then give it a name of a werewolf and we make it a monster, and it's a little bit easier to deal with. But at the end of the day, it's like a great episode of Scooby-Doo. Uh, we have the werewolf cornered, you know, we have it right where we want it, we have our sights set on him, and we go up and we pull off the mask, and almost invariably there's a human being underneath that mask so true um and i've seen in a lot of movies to the past 10 years or so um that they say what like monster movies uh they actually call humans the probably the worst monster there is out there 
compared to, you know, the other, you know, werewolves or vampires or whatever's out there, um, that they say that we are actually the worst monster, but I, and I guess we can be. Right. Well, going back to the idea of uh, Carl Jung as well, too, um, you know, like I said, we don't want to admit what we're capable of being because we are, as Shakespeare said, a little less than angels. You know, we, we are uh, a great species who have produced amazing works of art and literature. Uh, we uh, we are, I'm astounded a lot by what we've been able to, to, to do in our time here on planet Earth. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Carl Jung said, within every person, you know, residing deep down inside places that we don't like to visit, places that we don't like to admit that it's a part of us. Uh, in that realm dwells the shadow. Mm -hmm. And in that shadow uh, is a mirror. And in that mirror, we see our reflections. So the things that scare us the most, the things that sicken and frighten us the most, the things that are so repulsive to us, that means something to us you know that is the mirror in which we're looking into and that's the reflection that we see and as a researcher i really want to get to that kind of um bottom line of why we are so repulsed by these things by these archetypes and uh, it truly is i mean uh, I like to go out into the woods, and pound on trees and look for tracks and do investigations. Of course I do. I mean, that's just a part of who I am. That's the adventurous part of uh, cryptozoology. Um, but really my favorite part is mulling over uh, old books and looking at, you know, literary accounts and, 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 and reading eyewitness reports, uh, you know, five, six hundred years ago of what people would have deemed to be werewolves mm -hmm. uh, because they've been a part of us for so long. Um, and even looking into the, you know, reading between the lines and looking into the scant, uh, you know, archaeological uh, evidence that we have uh, concerning werewolves. And by doing that, we can shed a little bit more light on this archetype of what we call the, the, the lycanthrope. I really liked what you had mentioned about the coin earlier. I know we discussed that, and I think that was before we recorded. Uh, just to let the listeners know, uh, we were talking about the coin, uh, where you say there's two sides to, to a coin, uh, two sides to every story. But when you look at the coin, there's really three sides that I see. You have the edge as well. So that's just a way for me to say, um, be open-minded. And um, there's there's always a different version out there other than the two stories that you know of. There's going to be more. And like you said, if you flip one coin, who knows that uh, in the metaverse, there's not another 500 coins being flipped as well. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and these are the kind of conundrums that we're facing our ancestors as well, too. Um, you know, whenever we talk about werewolves, uh, I'm sure the younger population has been introduced to the werewolf probably through uh, the Twilight series. You know, yeah. whenever you have a buff teenager that <laughs> transforms into a wolf and off he goes and everything like that. But really, that is not part of the werewolf lineage. You know, that's that that might be an offshoot or a strain or a bastard cousin of the werewolf legend. But really, uh, being a werewolf was something that you really did not want to be. It was something to be feared. And not only was werewolfism something to be feared, in order to become one, um, especially whenever you come into the Middle Ages, into the Renaissance, it almost had to be forged with a pack of 
with Satan himself mm-hmm. in order to be imbued with these kind of powers. So the vernacular of the werewolf has changed greatly uh, considering what society that we're talking about. And then whenever we get into the uh, Judeo-Christian aspect of uh, of werewolves, now they become agents of evil. And now we have, you know, the, the good uh, chasing down and hunting down uh, the evil that preys upon uh, the unwary. Um, really fascinating stuff whenever you think about it, you know. And um, before we had the name werewolf, uh, we had the name of uh, uh, Theranthropes, you know. Uh, in the archaeological record, should I say, I mean, the werewolf goes back farther. Uh, but before people had the idea of lycanthropes, uh, we had the idea that human beings were indeed able to transform into animals. Uh, we can see this on cave paintings in France and elsewhere where uh, the Presumably the shaman is able to assume the form of various animals such as hyenas and bears and, and, and deer. And that probably comes from about, uh, you know, some sort of uh, a sympathetic magic. Uh, they are assuming uh, some sort of prey animal or they're assuming that animal spirit in order to divulge some sort of mysteries uh, to this v- very mundane world around us. You know, we're trying to find answers, always trying to find answers. So, like I said, we could go to the cave paintings and see human beings transforming into animals. Uh, but it's not until we get to the Greeks. Uh, who will actually give give us the name of the lycanthrope. And that is from uh, King Lycaon, who was the king of uh, Arcadia, uh, which is a backwoods place whenever we think of places like Athens and Sparta and and all these great city-states. We also have places that were rather obscure. Uh, You know, the birthplace of Alexander the Great Macedon was considered one of these very fringe areas. Uh, But Arcadia was one of these places that was a little bit more rustic than most. And it was a place of great superstition. It was kind of like their version of Transylvania. But it was out of this milieu, it was out of this um, culture in which the werewolf took its form, where the transformation into the lycanthrope finally comes to us. And uh, in one of the tells told to us, um, uh, the king, you know, uh, decided that he would test the omniscience of, of Zeus, the supreme god, and um, he uh, killed one of his children, and he served uh, the god, uh, his son, uh, as an offering. Now, it's obscure to think why this would happen. It's it's very convoluted, so we really have to kind of peel back the different layers of this of this onion uh, to get to the very core of what's going on. Uh, in this tell was probably um, ideas of uh, former cults that involved human sacrifice. Um, it probably is very ancient by the time it comes to, to our tradition. It was probably part of the oral tradition for maybe 500 to 1,000 years, if not longer. So in places like Arcadia, there were probably definitely uh, traditions where human sacrifices to the gods took place. And, um, you know, the other more cultured areas around that that particular center uh, would have found these very vile and disgusting the more they evolved and hence that you know Arcadia was seen as a place where very strange things took place so I think this was a vestige to the um, the remembrance of uh, of human sacrifices to the gods and uh, uh, King Lycaon probably was trying to um, show his 
pleasure of having the god Zeus at his table by sacrificing one of his sons. And sons were very important in the agricultural cult, uh, cultures around the, uh, around the globe. So I think that's where we really have uh, the kernel of truth of what's going on here. But as it comes down to us, uh, Zeus no longer would accept this, this, this human sacrifice and was disgusted and repulsed by being served uh, human uh, food uh, or, you know, you know human uh, being to eat. Uh, so one version of the, of the tale that he actually resurrects the son that uh, Lycaon had killed, and then in his rage, uh, Zeus transforms Lycaon into a wolf because a wolf is something that would, uh, without any kind of remorse, uh, prey upon a human being. So we have this tell, uh, you know, going back, uh, you know, at least uh, two to three thousand years, uh, in part of the oral tradition that probably goes back farther into the deep uh, recesses of, of, of uh, Greek history uh, to find the very first uh, uh, incident, incidents of the, the lycanthrope. And that's where we get the name from, Lycaon, lycanthrope, and there you have it. Now, if memory serves, I could be, I could be thinking of something else, but I think Zeus had uh, cursed the king and his sons. Um, it sounds, yeah, in several versions, that is indeed the case. Okay. Uh, and, and, and again, because it comes to us and, you know, who's telling the story, whether it's Hesiod yeah. or, uh, you know, later on, um, uh, we do have some Roman writers that are revising some of these Greek, um, uh, like Ovid, you know, was one of these great uh, Roman writers that would actually revise uh, some of the Roman myths and legends. Um, but yeah, so it depends upon which particular myth you're looking at, which particular resource you're looking at. Um, but it could could have been his sons as well too either way you look at it what we are dealing with is that the use of human sacrifices or the use of cannibalism would curse an entire race you know that they were mm -hmm. all responsible uh for this terrible uh misdeed that was uh, occurring here now i know in recent movies you know the past 20 years or so um it seems to be male and females um but when you look back at the older literature, it always seems to be only males, or am I incorrect in this? No, you're absolutely correct. That That is a, a really a, a poignant opinion that you have there, uh, because when we deal with the realm of vampires mm -hmm. uh, very early on, they were almost always predominantly female. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I think that what we're talking about here is um, the way in which these archetypes victimize uh, their, the humanity. Um, werewolves are very uh, um, in your face. They're very masculine. Mm -hmm. And um, whenever we think of where of uh, vampires, they kind of like slink in under the door at night, right? <laughs> There's a bit of seduction that goes on with them. They're just not going to go there and rip you to pieces. There's a bit of there's a bit of uh, you know, um, uh, for lack of a better word, there's a bit of foreplay that goes on with that. And that is very um, feminine, I think, in the mystique. So our great vampires, until we get up to Vlad Tepish, mm -hmm. our great vampires, the great archetypical vampires, are almost always female. That's really interesting. And I think also, um, oh, who wrote Dracula? Uh, Bram Stoker. I believe before he wrote uh, Dracula, vampires were very, very different. He came out with a brand new type of vampire when he wrote Dracula. Right. So that that's a great point. So 
whenever Bram Stoker has finally invented his Dracula at the turn of the 20th century, um, this would have been as bold as the glittering vampires mm-hmm. in Twilight, you know, yeah. because vampires, for the most part, were revenants, you know, it was these corpses that kind of came back to life. Uh, they were still in the process of uh, desiccation, they were still going through a process of falling apart. You know, there was nothing re- really uh, seductive about them whatsoever. Uh, they were, you know, just you know, the undead. Um, they were kind of ghostly, even in appearance and aspects. So it wasn't until Bram Stoker comes around and says that, you know, a vampire could take a form and turn other people into vampires as well too uh and this is all this is all part of that uh, of, of the myth building and adding on to the archetypes because any good archetype is going to evolve over succeeding generations each culture is going to change it a little bit tweak it a little bit but at its heart is still that kernel of what it originally was in its prehistorical phase yeah because when you look at nosferatu and you look at dracula they're very much they they look differently but when you like you said deep down in the core they're pretty much the same Right. Oh, absolutely. Now, the cool thing about Nosferatu is, uh, whenever that was made, and that was made just a few years after the movie, uh, the book Dracula came out, um, Bram Stoker, uh, you know, his family was still alive. His family still is alive, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. and they did not allow, through copyrights, they did not allow uh, the word Dracula to be used. So they had to use Nosferatu, and they were able to follow the story fairly closely without. Um, really going into the point that they could be sued so what what we have in there is a very classic look at an eastern european creature known as the strigoi and whatever if we would go back in time and talk to uh uh, vlad tepper you know the the archetype for what we now think of in the western world at least for the dracula for the vampire and where we get the name dracula from if we would talk to him about what he would believe a vampire would be, it would be the Strigoi. And that is a uh, reanimated corpse that rises at night. Um, and it's, been, it's interesting because the Strigoi feeds off the living in a very different way. They either um, bite the person to drain blood by biting them between the eyes or also uh, biting them over the heart. Uh, the idea of biting somebody on the neck is uh, is made up by Bram Stoker, and this is part of the Victorian norms of, of the time as well, too. Uh, sex had to be something that was very quiet, uh, that was something that was not paraded around, it was something that wasn't very public, no public displays of affection uh, in the Victorian world. So if we talk about somebody draining blood from the neck, it's a very central, very, you know, a, a very textual type of, of, of preying upon somebody. And um, we don't talk about that kind of stuff in in, uh, in Victorian era. So whenever his vamp- whenever his Dracula came out, that really turned the tables on people as well, too. This was something, you know, out of nowhere. This was kind of in your face. Uh, but the, uh, the vampires before uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula were much more, um, uh, well, a lot less sensual and much more brutal in the way that they did uh, drain the human's blood. A lot more animalistic. 
Much more animalistic, that's right. Now, also I want to point out, uh, several years before Dracula came out, uh, there was a, uh, a French uh, writer uh, that came, uh, Le Fanu was his name, uh, that came out with uh, 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 Camille, Camilla, uh, which was a female Dracula, a female vampire, I should say, keep on saying Dracula, <laughs> a female vampire, um, and um, it was uh, a, a, a tale uh, based upon um, two women who were in love with each other. So talking about turning the Victorian norms upside down, of mm -hmm. course this guy was French, and you know, the French get away with a lot more than the, uh, <laughs> the Victorian English. But yeah, absolutely, we were confronting sexual mores here uh, by putting this stuff out there, and it was very hidden, and it was very uh, uh, cloaked, but in the end, that's what we were talking about. We were talking about this, you know, the way people feel towards other people, uh, the idea of uh, um, taking advantage of other people in a relationship. There's a lot of things that go on here uh, from a sociological aspect and from a psychological aspect than just the story uh, that's written down on the page. Uh, getting just, oh, sorry, <laughs> I'm going to be editing that's that okay. part. I'm going to edit that part. Um, getting back to the werewolf uh. part, there, I know you've heard of this one before, werewolf syndrome, hypertrichosis, I believe is how you pronounce it, oh. where there's actually people in the world um, who are being mistaken or ha have been mistaken for werewolves because they literally have hair covering their entire body, their faces and everything, and they do kind of look like um, what Hollywood would perceive as transforming into a werewolf. Um, do you think that this is where we get some of because i think they're south american there's a there's a, a long line of families uh or, or long uh, uh oh, jeepers a family line in south america i think that uh really are affected with this both uh, males and females i don't know if there's any others in around the world but do you think that this is also where some of the werewolf legend came from seeing these people uh, absolutely. And let, 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 let's talk about this. Let's actually explore this a little bit longer because I wrote a book entitled On uh, uh, Dogman, Tracking yeah. the Werewolf Through History. Mm -hmm. And I did have a chapter on this in, in my book because I, I think it's essential to talk about. Mm -hmm. So the people that you're talking about uh, are actually from Mexico. And uh, they, um, you know, have turned into circus performers. They're making a great deal of money off of it. It's not like they're being subjugated or made fun of or anything like that. They're they're actually very talented uh, circus performers. Although I think they might be getting more and more out of the business. But absolutely, um, hypertrichosis is definitely a very real syndrome in which people grow an abundance of hair over their body to the point when they are completely covered in black hair. Now, these people, we know that these people have existed throughout history because we know in, um, in the Renaissance, uh, in the Canary Islands, uh, there was a gentleman who was, who was, well, I guess captured is the wrong word, but whenever we talk about colonization, I guess the only word that we could use would be captured. Whatever the case may be, he was taken away from his home and brought back to England uh, into the royal, the royal courts and um, kind of as a curiosity piece, you know, uh, kind of something to fill in the uh, the menagerie uh, with something, you know, very unique, something that people didn't have. Um, but uh, what's so interesting about this case is this is probably where the genesis for Beauty and the Beast came from. Uh, he was, uh, of course, admired 
at court, and he actually caught the eye of a lady who they, she, he and her, uh, he and she actually married, and they produced offspring. I think they had eight children. Four of them well, actually had hypertrichosis passed down to them. Uh, what is interesting about the four children that had hypertrichosis is that um, these children were taken from this couple and handed out to various other families uh, who were part of the royal court, almost as if they were puppies, almost as if you had a litter of puppies and you started yeah. to give them away. Uh, but yes, yeah, so we do know in history that people ha were afflicted with hypertrichosis um, were out there and what people thought of them whenever they did encounter them. You know, they were considered beasts. They were considered curiosities. Now, this is one of my theories. If you would have go, if you would go back in time to the, especially to the Greek world, mm -hmm. and you would say, I would like to find a dogman. I would like to find something that resembled um, a, uh, a a werewolf. Uh, so they have a great word for for dogmen back in in the Greek word, and that's cynocephala. You know that that's dog headed. You know, and on maps in the ancient Greek world, we would find places that had cynocephalists. Uh, we would find them in certain places, uh, like far away places, like um, India. So it's my conclusion uh, through studying various reports that this cynocephala probably uh, was some sort of uh, genetic disease, maybe hypertrichosis, maybe something akin to it or, you know, slightly different from it. But whatever the case may be, it was something akin to hypertrichosis. And it's very possible that places around the world would banish these folks. Uh, because they were so unlike, you know, unlike the, the community at large. And it's very possible that these isolated communities of people that were suffering from this uh, uh, particular type of disease uh, gave rise to the werewolf legends. I mean, think about this for a second. They would only be seen on the outskirts of town. You probably wouldn't have any dealings with them whatsoever. You know, people out hunting or whatever might come across one every now and then. But that is a great way to assume that the werewolf legend really kind of built up momentum, if you would think about it. You know, I think that that's a great way uh, to assume that a lot of this werewolf um, um, romanticism, if you will, uh, came about. It was through these, these, these places where people were exiled to and they were dealing with these problems and people would see them every now and then. And uh, for, you know, in a pre-scientific community, what else could you call them but wolfmen? Mm-hmm. And after they've been shunned, of course, they're go you're going to have a lot of well, a wild uh, humans out there. So they're going to be not not necessarily friendly because they're wild. You know, they're feral. Sure, sure. And, and I'm not. Yeah, I mean, it's very possible they may have even started their own communities that had some civilization to it as well, too. Um, the Greeks loved to. Um, expose children that's that's a that's a classic term for if a child was born with some sort of defect uh the parent did not want to feel guilty for murder so what they would do is they would take the child out and expose them to the elements they would take them out into the woods and just leave them now it was the will of the gods whether the child lived or died um and it, the parent could really um uh, shrug off any kind of uh, a guilt because it was the gods that were 
killing them, not not the parents themselves. Yeah. They were leaving them to nature. If the gods wanted them to live, they would live. Uh, and we know from Sophocles and, and, and Oedipus that Oedipus was exposed to the elements and he was taken in by a kindly uh, shepherd. So we do know that people were exposed to the elements. Children were left uh, that were unwanted or deemed to be um, uh, some sort of abnormality to them physically. Uh, and we do know that people would take them in. And it's very possible that this is what happened, that a child with hypertrichosis was left out, you know, abandoned. Um, and, you know, somebody came up, came upon the child, had pity, took the child in. Uh, and if this would happen through uh, succession, if this would happen a few times, uh, because we have to understand that if a family is producing hyper, uh, 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 hyper, uh, or, uh, hypertrichosis, uh, it will be passed down to, uh, you know, the offspring, you know, other offspring. So you think about this, if a family uh, has, you know, five children, six children, whatever, and half of those children are born with hypertrichosis, those children are going to be exposed. But if somebody's taking them in, it's very, po very possible that soon you will have a society in and of itself of hair-covered human beings out there that are living on the outskirts of, of town. And um, in my opinion, especially when we talk about Arcadia, whenever we talked about the uh, King Lycaon there uh, in the first uh, real werewolf, um, it's very possible that in these kind of backwater places, this is where the werewolf legend really took hold because there was these these groups or these last vestiges of, of people that were exposed that were able to be able to come together in their own groups to form some sort of civilization away from other people because they were deemed unworthy to be part of civilized society. Now, I remember seeing uh, photos uh, of families with this um, uh, syndrome, I think it, it is, uh, the werewolf syndrome, and it's really neat to see them with the Elizabethan collars, you know, it's just like, I was dumbfounded when I first saw the photos, but I've never seen photos of babies. Do you happen to know if um, someone has this affliction, are, are the babies also covered in hair? I've never seen photos. Yeah, they are. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So you can Google it. Um, uh, yeah, you can see that. So people, you know, have elected, you know, you can shave your body as well too, mm -hmm. uh, but it quickly grows back. So the idea of transformation is very inherent in these legends as well too. So if you want to fit in, you can definitely shave your, 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 your body or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, but it's going to, it's going to grow back very, very quickly. So it does seem as if somebody is transforming. Oh, makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Can you... So when I look at werewolves and Lugaru, for example, the difference that I understand is werewolves um, do not keep their their intelligence, but Lugaru do. Can you kind of explain the difference between the two? Because I always thought that that was the main difference between the two. Yeah, you know what? Um, I have looked at, because the Rougarou is always uh, fascinating to me, the, the Lugaru, the Rougarou. Yep. We have the Rougarou here in uh, yep. in, uh, in Louisiana area, you know. That is part of our, our the, the Cajun influence that was brought down from Canada, as a matter yep. of fact. So, so there's, yep, so there's these different types of aspects to them. Uh, but here... Uh, in, in the United States, uh, the loop guru, the Rougarou, is uh, still uh, a very bestial creature as well, too. But it seems to be able to identify with people as well, too. So it doesn't give over completely its human reason. Yes, I do agree with you on that aspect. Uh, but 
the terrifying thing about this is, though, even if you give up just a little bit of your human reason, you become something that we don't want to be. We become fully animal that we mm-hmm. can, cannot control. Um, and the other thing that's so nightmarish about this as well, too, is that you often don't remember what you've done as well. So you're out there committing these heinous crimes mm-hmm. against nature, and then you wake up, and it's as if you are innocent of what happened, but your body had transformed, so you are guilty through that as well, too. So that's a terrible thing to go through as well, too, to actually be, um, you know, sane in one state and then to be guilty and insane in another. And I think that's the other thing that we, we are, are overlooking in this uh, Werewolf Legends as well, too, is the idea of sanity and insanity. And I think that probably comes a part of these uh, these legends as well, too, of the Loop Guru and the, and the Ruguru and all these other creatures as well. Kind of it makes me think also of uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the idea that a person can become something other than he wants to be, um, you know, we could talk about ancient instances of schizophrenia that were called into into play uh, regarding, you know, um, uh, uh, werewolf legends. And we do know, uh, actually, that a lot of these werewolf legends did come from uh, uh, people with mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you would look at woodcuts uh, in the uh, Middle Ages and the Renaissance, Almost uh, always, uh, 95% of the time when we're talking about werewolves, we do not see a person in these artistic uh, 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 illustrations um, as transformed into animals. We don't see them as werewolves. We see them in um, uh, clothing that is ripped. Mm -hmm. We see them with disheveled hair. We see them in the guise of what we would call the mentally insane. This was kind of like the iconographic way to portray somebody that had mental health issues. You know, they were unkempt. They were um, not properly dressed. And sometimes they would be wandering around on all fours as well, too. So like I said, about 95% of all artistic representations of the werewolf is simply a human down on all fours, uh, still in clothes, although they're they're ripped and shattered and shredded and everything like that, uh, and their their hair is all wild and everything. But that is to show that they do not have a full capacity of their of their uh, their faculties. Where does the dogman enter? Because to me, that seems like a relatively new uh, cryptid. Do you know how? When was the first time that uh, dogman was mentioned? Yeah, the do- the word dogman actually comes, and uh, don't quote me on this, but I think it's like in the 1950s or 1960s mm-hmm. that we first have it. It was part of a radio spoof up in Michigan, but um, because it was uh, coined at that particular time does not mean that um, the legends of a yeah. dogman creature uh, was not in existence. Uh, whenever uh, lumberjacks went up to the great woods of northern Michigan, uh, they reported seeing upright walking wolves up there. Some people even reported being attacked by packs of wolves that were walking on two legs. So the tradition is very, very ancient. Well, I mean, as far as uh, the white man, uh, by very, very ancient, I mean a couple hundred years. But if we go back and look at the um, the uh, uh, the Native American 
uh, the First Nations uh, uh, belief in these creatures. It goes back thousands of years. Um, in the Ohio River Valley here, uh, we had um, uh, uh, what we would call um, a werewolf cults, or at least the cult of the wolf, uh, in around Kentucky, in around uh, Tennessee. Uh, in the Ohio Valley, uh, you would have uh, uh, these uh, Indian uh, nations that would uh, seek to take uh, the deceased and make them into what would be appear to be a werewolf, uh, or at least some sort of wolf-like creature. Uh, it would go so far that after the person was dead, that some of these cultures would actually remove the lower jaw of the human in order to put a, a wolf muzzle on it. So they would be taking... Um, parts of a, a wolf skeleton and putting it onto the human to make it seem as if that human was going through some sort of transformation. So we know that in the Ohio Valley we have this, this uh, tradition uh, in certain tribes where uh, the human being uh, the, the, that were after uh, they were deceased uh, posthumously uh, the, um, the human skeleton uh, was uh, configured uh, in such a way that uh, they were seeking to make the person appear to be um, some sort of combination between a wolf and a man. Uh, we know that sometimes they would even remove the lower jaw of the human uh, skeleton and put a, uh, a, a the, the skeleton of a wolf over their face so that the person would appear to be in a transformation type of process. Uh, they would also take furs and wrap the body in fur. So if you would come across these uh, these burial mounds and find the interred therein, you would find a, a an amalgamation between a human being and a wolf, which is great because whenever we look at places like Land Between the Lakes mm -hmm. in uh, on the border of uh, Kentucky and Tennessee, there's great werewolf or great dogman traditions down there that are occurring even today and this is not far away from where one of these burial mounds was discovered with the the, the, the body of a person that had uh, appendages of a wolf attitude hmm. i didn't know that part that's interesting yeah. yes yeah and and we also know that in the native american tradition that uh, dogmen have always been uh, tutelary spirits. These are protective spirits, mm -hmm. and they're often associated with, with burial mounds. Uh, and if you look at the Beast of Bray Road uh, up there in Michigan, um, that is an area you know, right there around a lot of different burial mounds. Uh, and um, some of the first reports of the dogman uh, where before the dogman came into existence, before that word became point, a lot of reports have been of people seeing a very large wolf-like creature around burial mounds oh that's interesting and they're walking they're bipedal correct uh not always uh, sometimes oh. they were quadrupedal uh mm -hmm. but the other interesting thing about this as well too is if we would go back to ancient egypt i was just going to mention and that. we see it yeah see there we go cat yep. and their funerary uh uh you know their their philosophy their uh their cosmology a uh, part of their death ritual too was their version of the dogman which was anubis yep yeah some people firmly yeah, so believe we... some some people firmly believe that um 
Anubis is actually a race from that was not originally from Earth. I've, I've heard this uh, several times that for whatever reason they made it to Earth, uh, crash landed, I don't know. Um, and that's where the werewolf and the uh, dogman and, and Anubis, you know, that this is where they come from. It's very possible, but we do have a few artistic uh, representation, mm -hmm. <coughs> excuse me, of Anubis uh, in the form of a man uh, without being a wolf. So we do know that there was a transformation process uh, to the god of Anubis from man to animal and animal back to man. Uh, so again, as I said, when we're connecting the dots, uh, we're going back five, 6,000 years mm -hmm. to ancient Egypt, and then we can connect the dots the whole way up to, you know, you know, a, a thousand years ago in North America. I mean, what's going on? Uh, and again, think of the aspects and the similarity of this. Both of these creatures are appearing as a dog-man type creature, a werewolf type of uh, creature, mm -hmm. and they are associated with the, the deceased. I mean, that is yeah. a lot, if you would think about it. There's a lot of stuff going on there. This is just so fascinating to me. It just it just is. Oh, it is. It's fascinating to me as well, too. Uh, now, uh, some uh, uh, anthropologists have theorized that what happens in Egypt is whenever you bury the dead, uh, that the animals will come down and start, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, preying upon the carry, you know, uh, mm -hmm. scavenging off the dead bodies. Uh, and uh, one of these uh, 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 scavengers uh, would be the wolf that would come out or the jackal that would come down. Mm -hmm. And it's been theorized that what would then happen within the human psyche is you do not want to believe that your loved one is being eaten, uh, its remains are being eaten. So it might be better in the human psyche to believe that that animal is a god that is now transporting the loved one to the afterlife. That's something to think about. And if that is the case, that is probably what happened in the Indian burial mounds as well, too. This is a predation of predators that would come down uh, to feed off the bodies. And they were deified because people didn't want to believe that that's what was occurring. It mm -hmm. could be something as simple as that. It indeed could be. But there's also this aspect where these were seen as protective spirits who were the psychopompists, which are the conveyors of the souls of the dead to the afterlife. That's another aspect that is found in both Egyptian cultures and in North American cultures as well. Because when you look at the Egyptian, the ancient Egypts, when you look at their hieroglyphics, um, they have so many uh, part man, part animal you know, uh, hippos and cats and so many different varieties of uh, what we could potentially consider uh, maybe a shapeshifter for, from this day. I, I don't know. Sure, a shapeshifter. Uh, uh, I mean, look, there, there's a lot of different ways we can look at it. Yeah. Uh, the personification of, you know, the human and the animal together, you know, both having attributes of the same. But there's so much that goes on with uh, with uh, the character of uh, Anubis. There's so much that goes on there because it is so intrinsically tied to the death ritual, you know. Mm -hmm. And it is like he is like a, he acts as a priest. So it's a very human type of element there as well, too. Uh, but I just think it's a fascinating thing when we look at the uh, character of Anubis. Yeah, so, so incredibly fascinating. Um, I've always been extremely in love with ancient Egypt, uh, even have a big tattoo of Bastet. Uh, oh, right, right, Egyptian right. Cat goddess, yeah, with uh, the three 
pyramids um, that I will be adding to it eventually, uh, and I will be adding Anubis to it as well. But there's just something ever since I was a young a young girl and we went to the library, uh, this in uh, for the school library and saw books on ancient civilizations and saw I, I don't know the Egyptians called to me for some reason. I was just so fascinated by that ancient civilization more than the others. Um, and it's just kind of grown over time. No, I agree with you 100%. I think the first time we start having our wanderlust, the first time we want to become little Indiana Joneses, even before <laughs> we know who Indiana Jones is, yeah. is by looking at the pyramids. You know, Alexander the Great said, even time, Fears the pyramids. Uh, it's the only part of the uh, of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world that are still there, uh, and there's something that is so uh, miraculous. Whenever we look at the pyramids, uh, this is like the first very great um, building project in which humanity says we are here to stay. You know, mm -hmm. even more so than Stonehenge. You know, these are structures whose bases. You know, over an acre large that rises up some 380 feet in the air that they were um, uh, lined or they were actually faced in, in marble so the entire thing would shine in the sun so you'd be able to see them miles and miles away uh, and this is an interesting thing too up until the Eiffel Tower was built the Great Pyramid at Cheops was still the largest structure in the world I didn't know that Wow. Yeah, true story. So we have to think about that, how much, uh, you know, intellect that went on to this and how, how far advanced these people were. Um, I'm not one of these guys that talk so much about, you know, ancient civilizations and all these kind of conspiracies. But I will tell you this, undoubtedly, and this is talking from an anthropological point of view, undoubtedly, there was knowledge that we had in the past that we no longer have, that has either mm -hmm. been forgotten or hasn't been retained or has been lost or whatever. But we definitely have a knowledge base that has been forgotten for whatever reason. Yeah, because when you look at the Mayans too, their temples were um, pyramid-like. Uh, you know, you have uh, similar structures and how would they have been able to convey that? It's not like this day and age where in like two minutes you can find something uh, from that happened across the planet, you know. Um, it just fascinates me, just like with the paranormal, it doesn't matter, I've said this countless times, it doesn't matter on the, the culture, the religion, or whatever, everybody seems to have the same, uh, you know, there's Bigfoot uh, throughout the planet, but they're all called different things, you know, Yeti, or, sure. uh, you know, it's just, so when you have these structures that are very similar around the planet as well, it's just so incredibly fascinating. Right. Well, that's what links us as human, yeah. you know, human beings. These archetypes, these monsters, make us very human. You know, mm -hmm. they need us as much as we need them. I've said that many, many times. Uh, we give them life, and they also give us life as well, too. They put us in our place. Mm -hmm. But it also goes to show you how similar we are. Uh, that we fear the same things. That we hope for the same things. That we endeavor to reach for the stars, no matter where we are. Um, this says a lot. This says volumes about the, the human spirit and who we are mm -hmm. and how similar we are. Even though we are 5,000 remo years removed from the ancient Egypts, we're still reaching for the stars and we're still hoping to comprehend things out there that lie beyond us. Um, the other thing about this, this, this thing 
I don't know, I think that we could kind of like really, um, you know, connect this very, very, uh, uh, this, this particular uh, uh, thought um, to uh, pre-scientific communities. Everything would have been the paranormal. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about the Egyptians, when we talk about the Mayans, we're talking about the Native Americans, we're talking about really any culture around the world. They are hoping to at least coincide with the paranormal, not overcome it, not really so much to even understand it, just to understand, just to uh, to uh, accept that it's there, and then try to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what really is going on. This is the reason why we have the great pyramids built, and this is the reason why we have these great uh, burial mounds built uh, throughout the, uh, the throughout North America or Newgrange in, in Ireland. This is all our hopes of dealing with something that is so far beyond us that we could never completely comprehend, but we can at least attempt it and we can try. It's pretty deep, my friend. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you got to think deep whenever we're, the, the waters that we're treading is going to be deep anyways. Anytime you step out, I mean, I think with the, the, the farther you get along in this field, the less it becomes tree knocks and whoops and things like that. And it becomes much more academic. It becomes much more complicated, if you will. No, it's just not about looking for footprints and hair samples. It's mm-hmm. about going deep into humanity and thinking about why these things are out there. And I've said this before as well, too. I find the wilderness that exists in the gray matter of the human mind just as fascinating as the wood and the thickets out there and mm-hmm. you know around the world where people are traipsing around looking for these creatures as well. Agreed. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm pretty well. Uh, uh, I, look, I personally think that this was a great discussion. This was a great conversation. Two people chilling, talking yep. about werewolves and vampires and things that go bump in the night. What more could you ask for? I know. And then all of a sudden you go into Mayans and Egyptians and <laughs> love it. Yeah, because they, they remember we talked about, you had said earlier that, you know, Bigfoot exists throughout the world. Yep. The idea of the wild man exists around the world, but they all go by different names. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they go by, but they're still part of the same phenomenon. They're still part of the same, the same element that we're all looking for now. Uh, you know, we're on the trail of Bigfoot or whatever, yep. but it still links us. It links us to the distant past, and it also links us to the future as well too. Because uh, until these things are, you know. Uh, scientifically uh, identified and classified, there's always going to be people out there wondering whenever they look into the deep woods, what live in, what lives in there. Yep. I'm very, very hopeful that we will find uh, more answers and actually see these creatures because there was not that long ago, I think it's a silverback gorilla uh-huh. uh, that they That's thought right. was just legend. And here we are, we know that they exist. So, right, the mountain gorilla, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. the mountain gorilla yeah. was not, uh, not known until relatively recently. Uh, the Komodo dragon wasn't known mm-hmm. until I think the 1920s. Yeah. So. So it's possible. Hopeful. There's still yeah. hope. There's still hope. <laughs> if that's all that we have, I'll, I'll I'll take the hope. But I will tell you something. There's there's the romantic in me that always hopes that they'll be on the periphery. Yes. And never pinned down on a scientific table. There's always a part of me that hopes that in that sheer wildness, because remember, once one of these things are categorized or cataloged, um, there is no longer that wildness left. Mm -hmm. These are the personifications and the poster children 
of all those wild places that we have well have not been conquered yet mm-hmm. and i hope that that stays wild for a little bit longer same um i'd like to be able to have the proof but we all know that they're going to be hunted and experimented on and uh, i really don't want that for any creature that's right. That's right. That's right. I want to be able to go out there on some sort of some midnight in the middle of the summer, whenever the moon is full, and how along with my my <laughs> my my dogmen brethren, you know, and hear the Bigfoot knocking on trees, whooping around, and their mock at who we think that we are. Yes, makes me wonder though if they um, if they're watching us and. Uh saying to each other these silly humans (laughs) yeah these silly humans you can see why we stay away from them kids yeah yeah or like uh so many people say that uh aliens probably just close their windows in their spaceships and just fly fly past that's right lock their doors and walk the windows that's right that's right yeah i think that uh i mean we are like i said i mean i, I love people i truly do I'm, um i i just am so enamored by humanity as it is uh but there's so much about us that's so um frustrating as well too mm-hmm. and not yeah that's what gets me as well too so i like to look for monsters because i don't want to keep on seeing monsters every time i turn on the news yes yeah, we are we are supposedly civilized, but we still do have those animalistic instincts in us that are deep, deep, oh. deep. So, yeah, that's right. They're deeply rooted, but they're still there. And I guess, as they say, you know, whenever the wolfbane blooms, the moon is full and bright. Those aspects can come out, you know, even though we are unaware of that of the, of the capacity for that to happen. And I do know people um, that are affected by the full moon. I and I jokingly tell them that, yeah, it's the werewolf in you. It's crazy. It's the. <laughs> it's really that's is. right. That's right. It's crazy. Yeah, ask any ask a police ask a police officer ask yes. somebody that works in the uh, NER. They'll absolutely tell you that is the truth. Yep. Well, my friend, we have been at this for about an hour. So before we I start, had a blast. As did I. I always do. Like I can't even believe an hour went by. It's just it I was, I went past, Yeah, I asked you. I said, I said, you know, we, we uh, had a little bit of a technical issue here, yep. and I said, you know, I said, you know, how how long we've we been doing this because it seemed like we just started, and here, you know, almost an all, a whole hour. Yep, it's amazing. Well, that's what happens when you have a good conversation. That's right. That's right. That's what happens whenever you have a good conversation in our living room while people are yeah. sitting around uh, drinking uh, crack and uh, spiced uh, <laughs> rum or whatever. Spiced rum, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we sign off, would you like to tell listeners where they can find you and your very interesting books? Sure, I can tell you. I will tell you this, that uh, my On Vampires book has been picked up by Walmart. So now you can get it no at way. Walmart. How cool is yes, that? Yes, yes. Probably not in Canada, though, eh? Yeah. Uh, and my on, uh, on Aquatic Monsters of the Great Lakes has also been picked up by Walmart. So those are two nice. uh, books that you can pick up at Walmart. I wonder if they have that in Walmart up here in Canada. 
I don't know. You should go try. Yeah. And now I will tell you this: they're probably not at every single Walmart. I mean, you could probably—I yeah. know you can order them online mm-hmm. uh, through Walmart.com. But yeah, it's still kind of cool to think they're at Walmart. But uh, if you don't want to go out to your friendly neighborhood Walmart and look for my book or order my book, you can always do it on um, on Amazon, where everything for any occasion can be found. So I'm on Amazon as well too. So either Walmart or Amazon. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's how you do it. And I, as usual, I'll be adding the links to the show notes so you can just go to Amazon and order as many books as you want. You are awesome. And, I, and we had talked about this before and I would like your listeners to know as well too, that hopefully in the near future, hopefully in the future, but definitely help hoping uh, in the near future that we can have a conference together where yes. we can actually sit down and talk about these things uh, in a very academic setting. So you don't have to be dressed in camouflage, wearing an adventurer's hat. We could actually come down and sit down at a nice table in a library or in a college setting and discuss the true nature of these things that we fear, these things that we call monsters and cryptids. Yes, I've been in contact with a local college here and uh... I'm just trying to wait and see what the COVID situation is going to be because right now they're only allowing um, certain like people that have to be on campus. So uh, a conference would not be possible right now. So if not at the sure. end of this year, I'm hoping next year in 2023. I'm hoping. Uh, absolutely. Yep. I, I will be there with, awesome. uh, as they say, with bells on. With I bells on, wait. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So as soon as everything opens up, I will let you know and uh, let. All you wonderful listeners know that if ever you wanted to uh, come to the Ottawa Valley for that conference, um, right now it's just in my in my head. I just have some ideas, but I plan on making this a reality, and uh, it'll be great to sit down with you, Ron, and talk about things that we, we talk about on uh, virtual living room. I cannot wait. I'm looking forward to it, Kat. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ron. I really appreciate you being here again, and I hope 2022 will be a good year for you. And I am so happy and and pleased that I was your first guest of 2022. Thank you. Take care. I hope people like it. Oh, I'm sure they will. Take care. All right, I cannot wait. Well, we've made it to the end of another episode. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, take care of each other. And if you'd like to be on the show or have questions and comments, just drop me an email, paranormalheart13 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Paranormal Heart would like to extend a special thank you to purpleplanet.com for supplying the music for the show. The views and opinions expressed on Paranormal Heart are those of the host and participants. 